Welcome back, Tradmen listeners, to another episode of Tradmen. Um, my co-host, my trusty sidekick, Jason, is not able to be with us, uh, unfortunately, for this episode. Please pray for him. He is uh, uh, going through a sore throat situation uh, that has just got him down for the count, unfortunately. Jace, we hope you're doing better. We hope you're doing okay. And uh, get well soon. Take care of yourself. Drink some hot tea. You know, whatever you got to do, because we miss you. Um, <laughs> so just be me today. Um, but I I wanted to do an episode because as many of you have been noticing in the Catholic blogosphere, we are coming up on an important anniversary, the 60th anniversary since the convening of the Second Vatican Council. And there's already been a lot of ink spilled on this and some of it's better than others. And some of it's, you know, there's all kinds of different viewpoints. And I would invite you all to uh, peruse those materials um, because I think that it's such a complicated topic. It's good to inform yourself as to what all the different points of view on this are. And if there's one thing we know about me and we have over here at Tradman, we have opinions and we have thoughts and we're going to share them on the internet, which I know is like the stuff of nightmare to, to modernists who, you know, are in love with Vatican II. They spend all day like that, that nosy neighbor peeking out the window with the binoculars. What are those, what are those trads doing over there? I bet they're thinking about Vatican II. I bet they're forming opinions and they're sharing them on the internet. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, I'll be doing a lot of like screen sharing because there's a couple of things I want I'll, I'll be using as visual aids. And so, but before we begin, as always, we want to invoke the divine blessing because if we don't do this for the glory of Almighty God, then what the heck are we doing here? Um, so I would invite all of you to join along with me um, as we pray a, a prayer to the Holy Ghost, invite him into this conversation that he will bless us with wisdom. And courage to understand difficult things in modern times, because they date, it takes courage <laughs> to be a Catholic today. That's for sure. In nomine Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Vini Sancti Spiritus, repletuor corda fidelium et tui amoris in eis ignim acimbe. Imite Spiritum tuum et creabuntur, et renovabis facium tere. Oremos. Deus qui corda fidelium sancti spiritus illustrationi docuisti, da nobis in iorum spiritu recta sapere, et de eos semper consolatione gadere, per Christum Dominum nostrum. Amen. The Second Vatican Council is probably amongst traditional uh, Catholics and, uh, and modernists alike, um, you know, a, a favorite topic of conversation. And most of the people who go to the traditional Latin mass, like I do, have, uh, you know, whether based on the text or based on what happened after the council, a very negative view of the Second Vatican Council. That is definitely understandable, right? Um, I think in I think in a lot of cases, it's a general uh, association right they 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 associate all of the, the 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 moral the ethical the aesthetic and the spiritual decline of the last 60 years 
with the council. In fact, there are many Catholics who say, yeah, that's not a misinterpretation of the council at all. The, the, the council um, in its documents were, was problematic and that, that, that problematic nature manifested itself in the decline of the Catholic church over the last 60 years. Certainly a, uh, a, a valid opinion. And I will say that when it comes to examining council documents, looking for problematic language or problematic things or, or, you know, heretical ways of stating things. I'm not the guy for that. I don't have the, I don't have the background to be able to, uh, to open up this book and point to certain sentences and you say, okay, you see that right there? That's actually neo-Pelagianism. I like, I'm not that guy. I don't even know what neo-Pelagianism is. Right. And let's be honest, most of you probably don't know that either, unless you're, you know, a theology nerd and you just get really deep into that. And then, you know, maybe you get into that kind of stuff. For me, I like to take a bird's eye view, look at things, because I really do believe Christianity was a religion intended intended to be understood and loved by children. I don't think, I don't see how it's possible that a, 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 that the greatest of God's revelations, which is to give to human beings a true knowledge of themselves and of God's inner nature, is only intended for PhDs and you know serious academic discussion. I don't buy that. Um, and thank goodness that's not the case because I certainly wouldn't be eligible for membership if in the Catholic Church if that's all it was. So I take kind of a bird's eye view of Vatican II. And when taking a bird's eye view, I look at the council documents themselves. And this is really, I'm going to take, I'm going to talk about two things. I'm going to talk about the council in its, as it exists in its documents. And then I'm going to talk about the last 60 years. Not because I think people who make the association between the two are the same thing are wrong, but to me, the council ended in 1965. If we're going to talk about the council, we have to talk about what happened in the period that the council was in session and the final documents that they produced. Anything else is not really the council, right? I mean, that, that makes sense to me. Um, Vatican II was a, was a council primarily called for the idea of, of the of giving the church the tools to in, engage in dialogue with what it called the modern world, okay? The modern world that we're talking about is 1960s, early 1960s, mid-1960s, which is a very different world than the world we live in today. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's just how time works, okay? Um, you know, the thing about modernity by its nature is it's always changing, right? And, and so if we think about the world as it existed in the Second Vatican Council, um, then a lot of the documents and the things that they say make a lot of sense. And there are still, and, and even though we don't live in the 1960s, there are still some very beautiful um statements 
in the Second Vatican Council documents about what the liturgy is, what the church is, what the church's mission in the world is. Um, and so I, I, I don't think it's just because we don't live in the 1960s that Vatican II has nothing to tell us. Um, however, I think it's a mistake to assume that it was the intention of the Council Fathers that this is the definitive word on Catholicism forever. In fact, the whole point of this document is coming to grips with the fact that every generation has different challenges, different cultural norms, different technologies, and the Catholic Church ought to engage with that and, 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 and approach that in an effort to call everyone to conversion. Um, it has its flaws when you try to examine it for today in 2022. I'll give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. There's a document in here and everybody knows of the big documents, Sacrosanctum Concilium and Gaudium et Spes. And, um, you know, the, 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 those are what, you know, I would call the, the, the big major documents, but there are documents in here, which are important, have a lot of beautiful and sound things to say in here, but, you know, not really very relevant for our modern time. I'll give you a perfect example of this. There is a, um, there's a document in Vatican II. It comes right in, in, in my, uh, my uh, issue of, of the second Vatican council documents comes right after Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the, the document, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. This document is called Inter Mirifica. Inter Mirifica is a document that deals, it's the decree on the means of social communication. This is the Second Vatican Council's statement about mass media. In 1963, 1965, in that period, mass media was an incredibly new phenomenon in human history. We'd never had it before. We've had the printing press for a long time. But the, the institutions that exist that deliver instant news to a global audience in real time, either by print or by um, television, I mean, that's incredibly new in, 19, in the 1960s. And the Second Vatican Council says that the Catholic Church should be participating in this, that we can utilize these means of social communication to, in, to spread the message of Christ to the world. And it, it primarily comes at this from a perspective that wouldn't, that, that makes total sense in 1965. And that is that the Organs of mass communication, mass media, because of the overhead cost, the technical expertise in operating the equipment, this is almost universally done by mass media companies, corporations. Your average news uh, uh, 
you know, outlet or, or the New York Times or whatever, right? And so the, the, the mentality in Intermedifica is that these corporate bodies ought to form things like professional organizations and trade organizations that will adopt ethical standards so that the companies are operating under some type of an ethical guideline that because when you're talking about communication you're talking about media you are spreading information to a huge audience in real time and you know we the, the council fathers needed to only look back at uh, at Nazi Germany to see how that can be used to great evil right because the the propaganda machine that Joseph Goebbels and Adolf Hitler invented was very focused in the mass media dissemination of the national socialist agenda. Um, and so the idea that, well, that's just not something we weigh in on. No, no, no. We're, we have something to say about this, right? But here's the problem. What about podcasters? Yeah. What about, what does the second Vatican council have to say? Because we know what it thinks about the big media corporations. What does the Second Vatican House Council have to say about the idea that anybody with an IQ above 80, $50 and an internet connection is now a global mass media content provider with an instant global audience of people who can access that media 24 hours a day, 365 days a year from almost anywhere in the world with a screen that they carry around in their pocket that's the size of a credit card. What does the Second Vatican Council have to say about that? What do you think? Yeah, nothing. Nothing. On this document, whose sole goal it is to tell the Catholic Church how to engage in social communication in the modern era, the word internet doesn't appear. And why would it? This happened in 1965. Can you imagine trying to explain to somebody anything about media in 2022 without using the word internet? It's impossible. Nobody, print is dead for the most part. Uh, the only people who were on network TV are the same you know, morons who watch network TV. Everybody's online. Conan O'Brien isn't on network TV anymore. He's on his podcast. Megan Kelly isn't on network TV anymore. She's on her podcast. Which means that professional broadcasters like Conan O'Brien and Megan Kelly are on the same channel that Tradman is on. <laughs> I cannot help but think that had the council fathers convened in 2022, the document would almost be entirely about that and nothing else. But that was that would have been impossible in 1965. And so it's not that I, I think the things in Vatican II were bad or that there's, you know, or that, nor can I see how Vatican II is, is the definitive and final statement on the church's mission in the modern world. That's impossible because essentially... What you're saying is the Catholic Church don't care about the internet. I hope not. I really hope that's not the message, right? Um, 
what a lot of trads have a problem with is uh, is Gaudium et Spes. They have certain problems with Gaudium et Spes, the really deep theological trads who get deep into the, the theological weeds of language, which I'm not qualified to do. But like in my case, it was always Sacrosanctum Concilium. For years, I did not like that document, but I always got the sneaking suspicion I was reading it wrong. Because the reason I didn't like it was not that I thought it was heretical. It just didn't make any sense, right? There, there's a, there's a, uh, one in one of the general norms for liturgical uh, reform uh, that deals with the mass, it talks about how Latin is the principal language of, of the, the Roman church and ought to be preserved as that. But in some cases where it's necessary, you can use the vernacular in prayers and songs and official church documents and devotions. And I'm like, okay, so are we keeping the Latin or are we getting rid of it? Cause you just said, you said both in one sentence, like this doesn't make any sense. And you'd go to ask somebody, Hey, help me explain, help me make sense of this document of Vatican II. And the response that you'd get from on high is, um, the reason you have questions about Vatican II is you're a bad person. Oh, okay. <laughs> and as convincing as they think that that is, and they still do that to this day, that's still the official, you know, policy from on high that, you know, don't read these documents. Don't try and understand any of this stuff. But if you don't love it, and it's not the only thing you talk about all the time, bad person. So I went years, not, you know, just in the dark on my objections of Sacrosanctum Concilium that I was willing to capitulate on if somebody could just give me a straight answer. But we don't really do straight answers in the modern day Catholic church. We gaslight people, lie to them, manipulate, you know, abuse them. That's, that's primarily what the modern day Catholic church is into. We don't really do straightforward answers to straightforward questions. And then I found this lecture by this priest. I think he's in South Carolina. And if I can find the lecture, I will put it in the show notes, I promise. Where he just goes through each document in the council and he gives like a two-hour talk on it. And after watching that and going, then going back and reading Sacrosanctum Concilium again, Sacrosanctum Concilium is now, in my opinion, the greatest document that the Catholic Church ever produced on her liturgy. I'm serious. I love that document. And all it would have taken for me to get there was just have a good faith. Aren't, aren't you guys supposed to be into dialogue? Oh, we have to dialogue with everybody. Why, you can't, why can't they dialogue with me? Well, we're going to get to that because I have an answer for that. And it's relevant to our conversation here. So I don't have a problem with Vatican II. And in a lot of cases, and a lot of what is written there, I really love it. Now, I know that there are theology people who, I mean, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, who is one of the smartest and brightest lights in the traditional Catholic liturgical movement, in my opinion, he's got some serious qualms with what's written in the documents. I respect that. I'm not saying I know better than him, but these are my opinions and this is my show and that makes my opinions the correct one. Um, <laughs> okay, so that's the Second Vatican Council. 
Now we need to talk about what has been going on for the past 60 years. Um, to describe the Catholic Church over the last 60 years as anything other than a total catastrophe is intellectually dishonest. It doesn't mean that there haven't been some good things that have happened, right? I think for the most part, the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI were great. Many of the writings of John Paul II, I mean, his encyclical Fides et Ratio, that changed my life. That changed the way I thought about, about the concept of truth and what, the, what it means to search for truth. And these are still things that I carry with me to this day. But by and large, to describe the Catholic Church over the last 60 years as anything other than a total disaster is intellectually and morally dishonest. And at some point, because we can't keep doing this forever, we're going to have to start telling the truth in the Catholic Church. I, I don't know how we're going to do it. Because... Right now, the biggest challenge is you have to convince people that the truth is actually even a good thing to do, right? Many people wonder why, the, why these bishops would cover up sex abuse in their diocese over, you know, the, when, when that big story broke. Why were they covering it up? Well, they covered it up because they didn't think that the lie was what was the problem. They thought the truth is what gets you into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and what is painfully obvious to me is in during the Francis pontificate, um, we've learned nothing from that experience because we're still doing it. We're still doing that. Lying is a matter of course. Um, and, and we're not even telling good lies anymore, right? Here is a... Uh, this is a, a, a <laughs> this was a statement, an article I read in the National Catholic Register. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen real quick because y'all ain't going to believe this one. Um, this person right here is Cardinal Hollerich, right? a Luxembourg Cardinal and a Jesuit. He serves as the Relator General of the ongoing Synod on Synodality. I feel, I feel wonderful already. Without Vatican II, the church today would be a small sect. Mm. If we didn't, he goes on to quote, if we did not have that point of reform that was the Second Vatican Council, the church today would be a small sect unknown to most people. So, so if you can think about it, according to, according to this cardinal, uh, in 60 years, the Catholic Church would have gone from being one of the most dominant institutions, not only in Western civilization, but in Western history, to something that no one had ever heard of. He added that he believes that if Vatican II had not taken place, the church would have been reduced to a group that performs beautiful rites, but that nobody knows anything about. Today, we must adapt to the changing mindsets, he says. People are still interested in the gospel, and we must rediscover the authenticity of being true disciples of Jesus. 
When asked about resistance to the Second Vatican Council, Cardinal Hollerick replied that the strongest comes from the traditionalists, who are curiously also a postmodern phenomenon. They choose only one point of reference in history without looking before and after. They forget how the growth of tradition develops. It's a bit like what happens with a Netflix series. They tell you part of the story, but invented, not real, he said. This is why it's no coincidence that traditionalist movements attract young people from France and the United States. Okay. If any of you have ever read Orwell's 1984, you'll realize that one of the, you remember that one of the things Orwell talks about is this linguistic thing called doublespeak. And doublespeak is a totalitarian method of controlling people's minds where you make people adopt at the same time, two mutually exclusive things in order to break their attachment with reality. Now, here I have this cardinal who, who wants us to believe two things. One, the Second Vatican Council was a huge success. And two, the reason it wasn't a success is because of the traditionalists who attract young people. Think about that for a moment. They can't even be honest with themselves anymore. I mean, this is a lie so odious, he didn't even bother to care if it was a good lie. They don't care if you know they're lying anymore. I mean, the way he sees it, he's in charge, you're not. So he doesn't care if you know he's lying or not. Okay. Alas, we arrive at, well, Okay, let's put a pin in that for just a second. Um, there's another thing that goes on in, in the wake of this, this anniversary of Vatican II, where people who attend the Novus Ordo Mise, and I know that there are some of you who watch our channel, and if you do, I, I want you to know you're welcome here, okay? We can, ha we can have disagreements about things. It's not an all or nothing proposition sometimes, right? Because they're right about something. Dialogue is important. I just don't think that they really believe in that the way they say they do, right? They, they, they hire pro-abortion people for the Pontifical Academy of Life because we have to dialogue. Oh, it's so important to dialogue. Okay, can I get a seat at the dialogue table? No. Okay, so it's not really a dialogue then, right? Right. It's not. It's a lie. It's another lie. It's all we do in the modern day Catholic church is tell lies. Now, here's an example of, of a way we have a conversation about the liturgical reforms of the Second Vatican Council, an example of it. I need people to know who go to the Novus Ordo Mise that we actually, in the traditional Latin mass, don't think about you all day. We really don't. And it is simply not true that my attendance at the local FSSP parish is a personal attack on you or your family. It, it, it might be, and I want you to brace yourselves for this. It might, it might be the case that not everything in the world is about you. This is an article from the National Catholic Register. Vatican II sought true liturgical reform. 
I'm open to listening to this. This sounds interesting. Okay. In a sense, I kind of agree with this, although I wonder if we're defining a lot of these words the same way. He goes on to talk about how traditionalists are endlessly critical of the new mass of Paul VI as a horrible abomination. But it's really a success story. And he has an experience that he shares from his from the Newman Center at the University of Nebraska that proves that, okay? Now, he's not saying we got to go back to the folk masses of the 70s. He sees that those were uh, extremes. But he doesn't believe there should be any Latin, no incense, no chant, no altar rails, and no diatribes from the pulpit about the evils of Vatican II. Now, if you can already see the straw man arguments forming, they are. A, we don't have endless diatribes on the pulp, from the pulpit about Vatican II. In fact, in the priestly fraternity of St. Peter's founding documents, Vatican II is referenced many times. Um, <coughs> uh, he goes on to talk about how um, the he he thinks that. Says the main draw of the ordinariate parish that he attends isn't so much the beautiful liturgy, which he loves, he claims, but the intentional community of deep faith that I have found there, just as I found it in 1977 at the Newman Center. I also think this searching after communities of deep faith is one of the main draws for people who attend traditional Latin mash parishes. In reality, I would rather attend a Novus Ordo parish filled with people of faith than a traditional Latin mass or ordinariate parish populated by fussy, complaining liturgophiles. The takeaway, therefore, is that what is driving so many people away from our parishes, in my view, and this is his view, is not the liturgy as such, since they're often celebrated just fine, thank you very much, that's his words, but rather the dreary state of the suburban ethos of spiritual mediocrity that hangs over so many parishes like a foul miasma. Well, okay. There's a dreary, so, so there's a dreary state of suburban ethos of spiritual mediocrity that hangs over the parish like a foul miasma. Well, if the litur and that, and that manifests itself in the liturgy being celebrated just fine. That's what you're saying. That doesn't make any sense. How would that manifest itself in, in, a, in, in a liturgy that's, that's beautiful enough? Thank you very much. But, but okay, I'll, I'll take your word for it. And we, we, we will continue. And I'm not going to read the whole article for you. And I, links to all these articles will be in the description. So I want you to definitely uh, go peruse these for yourself. But he goes on to say that it's simply a monstrous lie that it is not possible to celebrate new rites with sacred beauty. Um, well, I, I, I don't think that anybody ever said it's not possible. But the bottom line is, it doesn't happen. I mean, if it's possible, if it, and if it's, so, if it's so the norm, why doesn't it happen? Why is there such resistance to doing that? I mean, I notice, I, I, and I don't mean to pigeonhole everybody into this, but it seems to me that 
the Novus Ordo Mise apologists talk about the Novus Ordo Mise a lot of the same ways that socialists talk about communism. It's not that it's bad. We just haven't done it right yet. We haven't tried hard enough yet. We haven't implemented this enough yet. But everywhere you try to implement it, the result seems to be the same. You're telling me we can't do anything with that data? We can't synthesize that data in any meaningful capacity to draw any conclusions from that? You know, instead of talking about how possible something is, we need to talk about why it's not actually happening if it's so damn possible, right? That seems, you know, pretty pretty obvious to me. He goes on to say, and and you know that f- lace surpluses under fiddleback chasubles can hide ideological manipulations just as easily as denim Disney vestments, and perhaps the former is even more dangerous than the latter, since it can posture as the more pious alternative, right? And true, and he's a true liturgical reform can only move forward when the reform is linked to the broader reform of our spiritual lives. I agree with that. Um, But he also says that, then then we get into this weird interpretation of history. For many Catholics before the council, the liturgy had become a passive experience, something the priests did up at the altar in silence and in a language that was not the mother tongue of those gathered. Mass had become a place of quiet contemplation of private devotions, and not a place of communal worship in any outward way. Um, I've heard this before. I've heard this. Here's my question. How do you know that? How, How did you retroactively, in the wake of the, in the wake of the council, go back in time and interview those people who were sitting in those rows to find out what they thought about the liturgy. Maybe there's somebody who did it and you've referenced their work. And if so, I'd I'd love to read it. I'd love to find out how these people gain this, this mystical insight into somebody's inner thoughts the way that they are able to do. I mean, because they certainly do think that they're able to do that. Francis read my mind and then published it in L'Osservatore Romano in Tradiciones Custodes which was amazing because I didn't even know I was thinking those things. And I think that when, when, when you're somebody who can tell, you, you can tell everybody what people are thinking and what people were thinking in the past, not what they were doing, but what they were thinking. Um, you might want to take an exercise in humility and, 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 and admit that you don't know what anybody is thinking, Right. And, and and admit that there is nothing you've read or no work you've referenced that in some way garners the inner thoughts and attitudes of the average layperson in the pews on the mass in the 1950s. You don't have any, you've invented that entirely out of thin air. Uh, it says that they... Uh, they opened the door to the mass and the vernacular with greater 
uh, dialogical participation from the gathered worshipers. This led to the creation of the Novus Ordo, which is now the ordinary form of the liturgy for the vast majority of Catholics and has been so for now about 50 years. And the bottom line is that the Mass of Paul VI, despite its often poor implementation, embodies elements of reform that were much needed. Further, reforms of the reform are no doubt needed, but the vast majority of the laity do not want a return to the Latin Mass. Here we go again. You have this insight into what the vast majority of the lay people want. You also know that the vast majority of Catholics, that for the vast majority of Catholics, this is the ordinary form of the liturgy. Are you talking about the 83% of the Catholics who don't attend it every week? Because that's what the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate over at um, Georgetown University, who tracks these statistics, that's what, that's what their numbers tell us about 2021. Weekly mass attendance among those who describe themselves as Catholics, 15%. Yeah, it sounds like the vast majority of Catholics really love this liturgy. I mean, that the data is so clear. And if you have other data to that, to, to, con to I'd be open to hearing that, right? But we can't just go with, well, this is what every, this is the way all the people I talk to feel. Because if I were to do something like that, I could tell you the vast majority of people want the traditional Latin mass. Why? Because that's my bubble, right? And I know that, that, that the church is bigger than that. I would never dare to say that the vast majority of Catholics want to return to the traditional Latin mass. Because I have no idea what the vast majority of Catholics want. And the reason I don't know is, in spite of the hierarchy's jibber-jabber about dialogue, nobody has ever asked them because nobody cares what they think about anything. They say they do, but it's all a lie, right? They don't really care what you think. They just want you to obey. The vast majority of the laity do not want to return to the Latin mass. Really? Okay. And here's my favorite argument. It must also be remembered there are liturgical deficiencies in actual practice in the old mass as well. This is the thing we always have to remember. You got to remember that. The, the old mass was deficient too. <laughs> you know, priests often raced through the text with mumbled and mangled Latin, it says, with many Sunday masses lasting no longer than 30 minutes. Homilies were very short with little emphasis on the scriptural readings. People couldn't do the readings in Latin, so they had to use missiles. This is my favorite. This is my favorite line of the whole thing. Gregorian chant choirs were often non-existent. Well, thank goodness for the Novus Ordo Mise. They solved that problem, didn't they? Who knew? Because now the Gregorian chant choirs are no longer often non-existent. They're totally non-existent. I mean, this is his argument here. We have to get rid of the traditional Latin mass because there might have been liturgical abuses. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Got to get the Novus Ordo Mise in here as soon as possible, you know, so that there's no liturgical abuses. Are you delusional? Are, are, are you on drugs? Come clean, man. Are you on drugs? This is not 
an argument made by somebody who has really thought this issue through. It's just a continuation of setting up straw men and then taking them down because we don't have an honest conversation. See, to have an honest conversation, you have to listen to what the other side's saying and address that. Well, we're not going to do that because what they're saying, I can't really, I don't have an ideological defense against what they're saying. So I'd rather defend against something that I would wish they would say. And, you know, that would be fine if that weren't all we did. I mean, there's always going to be an element of straw man argumentation in any institutional body or, or, or discussion, but it seems like in the Catholic church, it's, it's all we do. Um, you know, the, the vast majority of the laity liked the reforms of the mass and they liked the reforms of the second Vatican council. So says Larry Chap in this article at the National Catholic Register, which is strange because over here in this article, written by the same guy, he points out that Ross Duthat wrote recently that, like it or not, we're trapped by Vatican II because we can't undo its influence, but there also isn't any consensus as to what it means, and it seems largely dead in the water. And what radical right-wing conservative publication was this in? The New York Times. And alas, we arrive at my final sort of analysis of Vatican II, which is it might be good, it might it might be not good, but the one thing I don't think with, with any sense we can really argue anymore is nobody cares about it. Nobody cares about Vatican II. I'm sorry. And that's got to be hard for the modernists to hear because According to them, Vatican II was not just an ecumenical council. Vatican II was the single greatest event that ever happened to anyone anywhere, dwarfing even the resurrection itself. And nobody cares. And they're salty about that. Now, if they were honest people, they could reflect on the Second Vatican Council, which they often tout is their creature. This is my baby. I invented it. I wrote it and I enforced it on the world. But the fact that it failed, that's not my fault. You can't blame me for that. It was um, the Tradies. They did it. Now picture that. <coughs> Little old me on my YouTube channel with 300 subscribers thwarted the the single greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the catholic church that don't make a whole heck of a lot of sense not to an intellectually honest person who's trying to figure out what went wrong here okay but it does speak volumes to the truth of what went wrong in the wake of the second vatican council it's largely the same reason I could never get an answer all those years that I was that I was seeking an answer to my my questions about Sacrosanctum Concilium. At some point in the middle of the 20th century, the Catholic hierarchy went from the attitude of it's our job to disseminate, explain, and help and get and get people to love the faith to it's our job because these people are all stupid. 
It's our job basically to lie, manipulate. It's our job to manipulate them into being Catholic because they're not smart enough to get there on their own. They didn't go to the Gregorian University, you see. And so uh, we're, we're, it's our job. We need to basically, we need to modernize them, but, but we're going to hide the language so they won't know we're doing it. We're so clever. They'll never see this coming. Um, that attitude of lying became sort of the official policy of the way the, the administrative function of the church works. The result of that is that trust has fundamentally disappeared between the laity and the hierarchy. That's bad enough, but what compounds the issue is only one party realizes that it's happened at all, and that's the laity. You know, trust is one of those things that you cannot impose by force. I don't care who you are, right? Um, in the situations where, like, for example, a husband and a wife, uh, one party has been unfaithful in a marriage. These are horrible situations, and I know they're horrible to think about, but they do happen in the world. And in those situations where they make an attempt at reconciliation, that's good, right? We want that to happen. And, and, and for any families that are going through something like that right now, um, they deserve our prayers, our sacrifices, and our compassion. But it's understood that part of that reconciliation is going to have to be the reestablishment of trust. And here's the important point. That steps taken to reestablish trust are exclusively, exclusively on the shoulders of the offending party in the betrayal. Okay? So it may be the case if you were a husband and you were caught stepping out and your wife has decided to forgive you because she's a bigger person than you are. That ain't the end of the issue. I'm glad that that y'all are attempting reconciliation. But it may be the case for a while going forward where she's going to have the right to look at her look at your phone whenever she wants. She's going to have the right to know where you're going and who you're going with. She's going to look at your bank account statements for a while. Because you have violated the trust. You need to own that and accept that and accept the responsibility for taking steps to reestablish that. <clears throat> if you do not do that, then any reconciliation you're attempting will not last and it will fail, period. Well, over the last 50 years, the hierarchy has burned us more than a few times. They have not only abused us spiritually, they have abused us psychologically. They have abused us financially. They raped our children for 50 years. Remember that? And you have to wonder, 
I'm glad, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm glad that they put new reporting procedures in place. And I'm glad that they've made a greater effort to, uh, to change seminary formation and, 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 and that level of accountability. Very important. And I'm super glad about that. But you don't feel that you owe the laity any attempts to reestablish trust? Your response to the way you've behaved over the last 50 years is tradiciones custodes. So you learn nothing. You continuing to lie. And we'll just continue this and continue this and continue this. But as long as that happens, trust will never be reestablished and no reconciliation will take place. I'm glad you went into a 20-minute USCCB meeting and adopted some new reporting procedures. And I think it's I think it's great that you have this really beautifully polished statement that was obviously written by a PR firm about how deeply saddened you are. But it takes more than that. Okay? It takes more than that. The bottom line is, I mean, you guys just had this synod on synodality. This was supposed to be the biggest thing. This was going to be almost as big as Vatican II. Of course, the modernists don't think there is anything as big as Vatican II. But you're going to have this huge watershed landmark event for the church in which you'll hold meetings around dioceses all over the world and lay people will enter into a dialogue with you about what they care about. And nobody came. You don't think that's a little strange, Your Eminence, Your Excellency, Your Holiness? That doesn't alarm you at all? I mean, continue to blame us. I know you're going to. The reason nobody came to the Senate on Synodality was because of the tradies. I, I know. I get it. But continuing to do that isn't going to work because it's not our fault. How is it possible that, you know, the, this, this article about how Vatican II sought true liturgical reform says that the vast majority of lay people want, do not want the traditional Latin Mass, and in the same thing, and in the same article says that thousands of young Catholics flock there. You're, you're, you're not interested as to why they're doing that? You're not interested into whose fault that might be? Why they don't trust you? You're going to, I mean, the Second Vatican Council is at the same time this monumentally huge, significant thing that happened in 1965. But it also bears zero responsibility for the outcome that followed it. How is it both of those things at the same time? Honestly, I know what the I know what the BS talking point is, the double think argument. I mean, what is the honest answer to that question? Brothers and sisters, if we do not my my frustration with the modern day Catholic Church is not the Second Vatican Council. It's not the documents. It's, it's not even the Novus Ordo Mise. Not really. I am not the master of the church's liturgy. 
And if the Novus Ordo Misae would be so great, why is it so terrible? You cannot just, you cannot just talk yourself out of reality. You are not an alchemist. You're not a magician. You cannot change the nature of reality with your words. And if you think you can, then you learned nothing from the sex abuse scandal. You learned nothing. Because the sex abuse scandal did not happen because of improper seminary admittance standards. It did not happen because of uh, less than optimal reporting procedures. Right, Because when the documents came out, we found out people have been reporting you to this to you since day one. That wasn't the issue. The issue was you lie all the time about everything. And nobody trusts you. Now, look, I, I, I get it. <laughs> I lie sometimes, too. I'm good at it. Well, I'm not good at it. I, 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 my, I, you can ask my wife. I can't even keep it together when she wants to know if I bought something on Amazon. I'm a sinner. And sometimes out of cowardice or convenience, I lie. But I do recognize that that's evil. And it's not good when I do it. And when I do it, and then I come to my senses about what I did wrong, that person that I lied to, I owe them a correction. I owe them the truth. And if I don't do that, then they shouldn't trust me. Right? So, so alas, we arrive sort of at, you know, this, this major survey of Catholic priests that was just done. This is the large. This is the landmark. Um, this is the largest. Let's see the the largest national survey of Catholic priests conducted in fifty years. What 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 were the outcomes here? What do you think? What do you think it said? Let's take a look. Major survey of Catholic priests finds trust issues burnout and fear of false allegations as the number one issues. If you read this article, you'll find out that the average diocesan bishops trust, the average diocesan priests trust in their bishop is around 49%. That's less than half. Now, I'm not saying that I'm the most honest and, 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 virtuous person in the world. But if it ever came out that 50% of the TradMed audience does not trust Mark, I'm going to take an honest and hard look in the mirror and try and figure out what it is that I'm doing that's causing that mistrust. But that'll never happen. Not with this group. We'll tell more lies. And when people don't believe the lies, we'll just, yeah, we don't care. We're in charge. You're not. I don't even have to come up with good lies anymore. I can come up with what this Cardinal Hollerick said. You know, Vatican II was a smashing success. It was also a failure, but that's not our fault. <laughs> what? So, you know, that that's my take on the 60-year legacy of Vatican II. The church is a mess. But here's, here's the thing. It, 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 it can't be a mess because of God. 
Every crisis in the Catholic Church is a man-made crisis. You know, this Second Vatican Council, like all ecumenical councils, um, even though the most famous ones you can think of, there, there's a window of relevancy to the day that they're in that it closes, right? I mean, people don't sit around and think about Vatican II any more than they sit around and think about the Council of Chalcedon. It's not that Chalcedon wasn't a great council, not that it didn't say anything important. But how long are you going to continue to blame this on other things before you get tired of it hurting? I just can't figure out why in, you know, I can only imagine when that Boston Globe article uh, came out and I think it was 2001 or 2002, what it must have been like to have to put on a Roman collar and go out in public that day. I can't imagine because there's a lot of great and holy priests out there who did not deserve to be associated with that. But nonetheless, they had to be. And they had to put that Roman collar on and walk down the street and bear the shame of all of the bad people who did, who, who did those horrible things. One would think that after you had to do that once, that would be enough. One would think that that would be an experience that would teach you a very humbling lesson. Taught them nothing. It taught them nothing. And that's, that's very sad. And it's also quite disturbing. Um, I don't know if it's that they're just not capable of remorse or if they have really just fundamentally failed to misunderstand exactly what it is that went wrong here. Um, I agree with the statement that what happened in the last 60 years is not the fault of Vatican II. I agree with that. There's actually nothing in this document that says um, radically abuse the laity and then lie to them and tell them that it's not happening. That's actually not in here. I'm not sure why that became the official policy of the church in the wake of this. I, I really don't know. That has actually more to do, I get the suspicion that that has to do with our fallen human nature more than anything else, not an ecumenical council. Um, I hope that this has been uh, interesting for you. I mean, this is, this is just my take. It's just my opinion. And by the way, I want to talk about that real quick. You're not allowed to have opinion, opinions about Vatican II. You're not allowed to debate Vatican II because if you do, you deny Vatican II and you can't do that. Yes, you can. Academics have been debating ecumenical councils since time immemorial. I'll, I'll put it to you and I'll put it in the other one. Uh, this, this Council of uh, Florence was a, a hotly debated, it's still hotly debated uh, in, in, you know, in ecclesiastical academic circles. Um, there are even, uh, th this Council of Constance, for example, um, Italian, uh, there, there have been people who have debated its legitimacy and its, you know, it's the, it's nature and it's whether or not it was a good idea or a bad idea. They still do that to this day. Vatican one is something that 
people debate about a lot. Well, you know, not 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 that the Vatican one wasn't correct in what it said, but was that a good idea to do that? Was that a, was that a smart move or not? You know, the prudence of that was that good or bad? These are these are discussions we have always been able to have in the church um, until recently, until recently, right? Because now we must dialogue, and if you can believe it, what dialogue means is I lie, and you shut up and believe it. Well, I'm very sorry that that's what you think dialogue means, but that is not the definition of the word. Interestingly enough, if you've never heard of the Council of Constance, that's because in 1487, Pope Sixtus IV formally annulled the decrees of the council. But that's impossible. You can't deny an ecumenical council. And the reform that an ecumenical council ushers in can never be undone. No, it can be, and it's happened. <clears throat> there are also ecumenical councils that were not annulled, but the reforms that they tried to implement didn't work. There was one ecumenical council whose name sort of uh, escapes me at, at the moment. I think it was uh, Basel Ferrara Florence uh, that implemented reforms for the effect of healing the East-West Schism. Reforms went into effect, but the East-West Schism remained. The council is largely considered today by almost everybody, with anybody with a thinking brain, to be a, to have been a failure. You can't say, you can't say that. No, we're only not allowed to say that about the council that you did. And I, and I bet that has nothing to do with your pride or anything like that. I'm sure. I know. I get it. And that's our show, everybody. <laughs> I don't know if that was interesting or not, but uh, I think that I hope that the Catholic Church, at some point, I, I hope men of principle and conviction and honesty begin to occupy the ecclesiastical offices again. Until that happens, um, nothing about our current state of affairs will change. Period. It's got nothing to do with Vatican II or Vatican I or the fact that I go to an FSSP parish, believe it or not, it is not the fault of the abused when they are abused. That's actually not the case. Only psychopaths and narcissists think that. And that may tell us more than we care to know about a lot of the people in the hierarchy in the church today. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. May Almighty God bless us all, and may Our Lady keep us. And remember, life is hard, but it's harder when you don't pray the rosary. God bless.